Welcome to Shaping Healthcare, a podcast by Sidious Tech. Some of the great minds in the world are constantly striving to solve the healthcare industry's greatest challenges with technology, creativity, and agility. With every episode of the Shaping Healthcare podcast, we will take you deeper into the world of healthcare and life sciences and give you a perspective into what it takes to build a human-first, technologically-enabled healthcare world. I'm your host, Laurel Rockle. Joining us today is Shatang Patel, Vice President of Health Plans and Consulting at Sidious Tech and a man with a holistic understanding of the U.S. healthcare system, having worked in the healthcare management and health policymaking settings for over 20 years. Shatang has dedicated his career to serving healthcare clients and operationalizing strategy via cutting-edge technology. He has a great perspective across the whole landscape of healthcare, from payers to providers, making him a great judge of how industry developments are affecting everyone involved. He is particularly interested in value-based care systems and has invested a lot of time and resources in advocating for implementing impactful technologies. He believes that it is important to ensure that adopting these technologies leads to tangible improvements in the healthcare system. Let's get his thoughts on that matter and more. Shatank, thank you for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Really looking forward to talking with you today. And I just want to open it up with, in your current position, how crucial is it for you to remain up to date with sentiments of the healthcare professionals working in the field who are actively on these front lines? Oh, well, short answer is incredibly crucial. At the end of the day, I serve a role where business transformation, which is essentially utilizing technology to solve those problems is the answer, if you will. And without proper adoption of those tools and solutions, which is done by those end users, they are moot, they're meaningless. So understanding how the frontline folks utilize that in their day-to-day decision-making are they seeking and are they realizing the outcomes from those solutions and tools that they're using in their day-to-day kind of goals and objectives? That is extraordinarily important for us. And so, yeah, the short answer is the more we understand how the frontline workers use it, the better we can design them and the better they can be useful or the better results they can deliver from that. Absolutely. And despite all cost containment efforts over the last 20 plus years, the U.S. healthcare expenditure was 16.6 of the GDP in 2022. And so based on these figures, can value-based care be the solution to help curb U.S. healthcare expenditure? It's a very complicated question, but let me take a couple of shots. One is there's, first of all, there's multitude reasons why U.S. has the highest per capita healthcare expenditure or spending in the world. It's not just one thing, but many things over the course of time, decades that have kind of been put in place. But the issue there is any policy or reform that comes along is not that comprehensive in nature to really address all of those reasons why expenditure is so high. A lot of times, so for example, if you go back to the early 2000s, when the consumer-directed movement kind of came into play, they only addressed aspects of healthcare ownership when it came to that patient or member, when ACA came into play, a big objective was access to care. There's some cost objectives also, but again, access was the number one reason. So when it comes to kind of addressing the cost of U.S. healthcare system, 
I 100% believe that value-based care is one of the only kind of strategies or mechanisms that we have put in place that can help achieve it. Now, having said that, CBO just came out with a report last quarter that talked about how all the demonstrations with Center for Medicare and Medicare Innovations, there's about 49 different demonstrations around value-based care. If you looked at all of them, they didn't really produce the savings that the government was looking for. Over a course of 10-year period, the government was spending $5.4 billion more, which included a lot of administrative costs and other components to execute those models. So are the results there when it comes to really understanding value-based care and what it has achieved in terms of all these different types of value-based care mechanisms that have been put in place? I think the answer is still to be determined. Just to qualify that CBO report, they also didn't take into account some of the more advanced value-based care mechanisms like shared savings models, especially ones with that incorporate upside, downside risk and other components. They also, in a lot of these demonstrations, the participation from provider side was voluntary. It wasn't a mandate. So you really had a very select few providers that participated in them, and they may or may not have had the capabilities that are required to really get the results that they were seeking. So as much as some of these reports that have come out recently say that they're not seeing the ROI, I think another way to look at it is where are the capital investments going when it comes to healthcare, right? So McKenzie just published a report last year that talked about if you look at all the investments from private equity standpoint, the investments in value-based care since from pre-COVID, so 2019 to 2022, they quadrupled. Whereas investments in traditional care delivery models, which is the best proxy would be kind of opening up new hospitals, they stayed flat. So the smart money, if you will, is saying that value-based care is the answer and it will deliver results eventually. But there's a lot of reasons why it hasn't yet, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, as we move forward. Yeah, actually, that was what I wanted to ask you about next. It sounds like there's a lot of hope or a lot of stock placed into value-based care and seeing that as the future, but there's some barriers there, maybe you know, clinical definitions or maybe just needing more data or more accurate data on these things. So what challenges have you come across that you least expected might be an issue? Yeah, that's a great question. And the key word in value-based care is value. What is value? And believe it or not, Agreement on what is value has been probably the biggest challenge that at least I've encountered in my career. And so what does that mean, right? Why it sounds silly, right? But traditionally, the two main parties involved in executing value-based care are payers and providers. And traditionally, they have not had trusted relationships. And a lot of times that value needs to be translated into data and information, whether it's diagnosis, whether it's condition, whether it's payments costs associated with those diagnosis, procedures, conditions, getting complete agreement on kind of all of those aspects. And, and again, the term value has been probably been the most unexpected kind of surprise, if you will, in my experience. But having the right language that everybody agrees on that defines the condition, that defines the cost, that defines the outcome is extremely important. And that's the other element of defining value is Health outcome is the number one measure. And a lot of times this needs to include patient reported or member reported outcomes because you're getting to quality of life and measuring that. And that's very difficult to incorporate into this kind of agreed upon data sets that we have, right? So for a number of reasons, I think that definition of value and what it means is probably the number one thing. 
There are, of course, a lot of other challenges associated with properly executing value-based care. But I would say agreement on value would be the most unexpected component in this equation. Yeah, I could definitely see how that could seem like an easy question to answer or just an easy thing to define. But yeah, there's certainly variability there or that need for agreement. And speaking of variability, with value-based care programs, there's been a variety of success with it. So why do you think we haven't seen consistent success and more affordability for patient and members? Sure. And so we talked about kind of defining value and how that's critical to have that agreement. Now, we also need to understand that value needs to incorporate all aspects of clinical, social, financial elements, anything that impacts that number outcome at the end of the day. And that translates to data. What data are required to incorporate all those aspects? And then how do you exchange that data? That's where technology comes in, is to exchange that information, gather that information. So the data piece is also tricky if you dig a little bit deeper, which is it's not only data to document a given condition or an encounter between a patient and a physician, but then it's also data or understanding to monitor how does that patient progress on that disease continuum. Then there's another element of it, which is utilizing evidence-based guidelines to properly treat that condition and that patient. Well, how is that codified into our exchange of information? And how do you maintain that? How do you keep it most current? Medicine progresses faster than many of us realize, but how do you keep incorporating the most most current evidence-based guidelines into the decision-making process? That's another element of it. So when it comes to data, when it comes to technology, where you can understand and get that data and make decisions, there's a huge gradient across the industry, right? In terms of capabilities of individual organizations, whether it's a health insurance company, whether it's a small hospital practice or a large hospital setting, there's a huge gradient in terms of capabilities to be able to exchange that data, to be able to utilize technology to exchange that data. And then how do you make decisions in terms of getting to that treatment? So that variance that exists is one of the core reasons, in my view, around why value-based care is so inconsistent in terms of success. The other element of it is also actual cost to the the patient. Regardless of the right cost for a given treatment in a given geography and how it is delivered, that also varies significantly. What about the social factors, economical factors, and how are those taken into consideration? So when you think about all these components, right? Data, technology, social, whole person components. Overall, you get a very fragmented system as a whole. And use of data and technology is subsequently fragmented and consistent. So at the end of the day, the result is a lack of consistent success across the industry. One final note I would say here is there's also, we talked about the trust factor, right? Between payers and providers. There's also the willingness of the organization to really commit themselves to delivering value-based care. I'll just use an example of a health insurance company, right? It's not just about how do you partner with your providers, right? But it's also about how do you partner with the community that you're serving in? It is extremely important when you think about value-based care and whole-person care to really leverage all the resources that you have access to and serve that member in the environment that they reside in. If you're unable to really understand the environment that patient or member resides in, it becomes even more difficult to then not only get the data, but to make the decisions to provide the right care at the right time. So 
all these components kind of really, I would say, are the reasons for why there is an inconsistent execution of value-based care across the industry. Certainly a multifaceted answer <laughs> there, yeah. And, but technology is always the thread I hear through most of that. And so why is technology the big answer, quote unquote, for a greater success in value-based care programs? Just as an example, data analytics that can look beyond the usual KPIs and build in these social detriments of health and these other issues that providers and payers need to consider. How will things like that drive the concept of value-based care forward? Yeah. And let's remember, the ultimate goal is still to improve health outcome, right? Get to that value piece as much as possible. And that's a function, a lot of different elements, right? As you referenced, not just clinical, but also social, also mental, behavioral components, financial components, geographical components. So truly whole person health. And then how do you bring all those elements together? In my view, there is no other way besides technology to really bring in all those components together. Another way to think about it is for chronic conditions. And as you very well know, there's a very small percentage of population with multiple chronic conditions that's responsible for a majority of those costs, U.S. healthcare expenditures, if you will, in the industry. And we're starting to see more and more value-based care models really address those chronic conditions. And how is it that these models can be specialized further? Well, the good news today is we live in a digital age, right? Back in the year 2000 or 1990, I don't know if it would be possible to be able to collect all that information as we're able to collect it today. That's one key lesson from COVID was the use of technology and how it can really help, especially in healthcare. So the ability to really have everything digitized and convert it into data, which can then be documented and exchanged with technology really lends itself to executing value-based care. I'll just use a very specific example about a chronic condition or heart failure. And based on all kind of research, I can, I'm talking about academia, the ideal value-based care model for heart failure, it needs to have a few elements, right? One is documented triggers to enter into the model. How do you do this? Well, again, technology, right? Certain diagnosis codes need to be there, certain procedures need to be there to be able to enter into that model. The care delivery aspect of the model, like the backbone of it, it has to be that evidence-based guidelines that I referred to earlier, high-quality guideline implementation that supports a longitudinal follow-up, right? Not just when the episode happened, but longitudinal to really get to that quality of life. The care team should be co-led by a set of primary care physicians, specialists, cardiologists, as well as nurses. So a lot of different types of caregivers. Well, how do you do coordination? across that kind of ecosystem of caregivers to really make sure that the patient is better off. Again, technology becomes an answer. And then finally, the model really is to facilitate home or community-based care, potentially through telehealth, through remote monitoring. So again, technology is the answer to enable that. Then all of this needs to also incorporate how do you measure the health outcome? So this is, again, a lot of times, it's not as simple as the outcome is, oh, the person didn't end up going back to the ER. That is certainly one of the outcomes, but we also need to measure patient-reported outcomes. What is the quality of life of that patient after they had the event? Are they miserable? Are they getting all the things they need? Are they getting worse? Just because they haven't been back to the ER or the hospital doesn't mean that you have achieved your outcome. Again, how do you measure that? How do you capture that? How do you do that in real time? If there is some kind of adverse event, how do you take care of it immediately so it doesn't become something much bigger? All these pieces, again, uh, technology becomes the answer. 
In terms of other aspects of quality measurement, analytics also is huge, right? Which is which quality measures are the right measures for that patient in that environment. A lot of times you may need to measure other elements besides just the clinical components and besides just the member reported components. So technology truly can get you to bring all these pieces together. And again, I just described a very ideal value-based care reimbursement model specifically for heart failure. But if you extrapolate that to other conditions, if you extrapolate that to even simpler, less complicated conditions, all those pieces still need to come into play to really see the ROI that you're seeking from value-based care. So hopefully that kind of answers a little bit of why technology is important. But I would say more importantly, it answers what all you need to do with the technology that you have access to really execute value-based care. Yeah, you bring up a lot of great points. And that was actually wanted to ask you just to maybe build on those answers a little bit that for you and what you see in your experience, what are your recommendations to providers when they're genuinely concerned about implementing value-based care and would like to do so? Yeah. And a lot of it depends on kind of their own capabilities, right? A large hospital setting, a small physician practice, a small physician practice in rural area, right? Where people are really far away versus a small physician practice in an urban area in the middle of Manhattan. Each of these settings will have different set of capabilities, not only financially in terms of how much you can really invest in information technology, but also your ability to get access to the patients in as real-time basis as possible to keep an eye on them, to monitor them. So my number one recommendation would be to first understand your own capabilities and in absence of certain capabilities to get access to certain data, to get investments in certain technology, identify areas how you can compensate for that, right? Start with a smaller segment of your population that you're serving. Identify the key pieces that are required. Maybe you want to just start with the social elements. Maybe you want to just start with the financial elements. But it does require a little bit more thought if you don't have the capital required to truly invest in EMRs, but truly invest in data warehouses and more modernized data platforms, I should say, truly invest in kind of digital engagement components such as CRMs. If you don't have those capabilities, then I'd start identifying areas where you can impact and work with those. And then the other thing is your communities, right? Work with your community to understand the patient, to kind of leverage their resources. There's tons of resources available in local municipalities from the states even, if you go a little bit larger and certainly federal level, if you have the right outcomes in mind. And a lot of these demonstrations, if you can participate in them, even though they're voluntary, I think you can get the access to the relevant technologies and then ultimately start to tackle it one by one. With that, once you know where you are and once they people understand their starting point, what will help accelerate the adoption of some of these maybe more advanced value-based care models? Well, let's understand the more advanced models a little bit better, right? So these more advanced models are not just giving a bonus payment to close to one specific care gap, right? Or enforcing a certain preventive exam. More advanced models really address things like medical loss ratio and what is the impact on the essentially reducing overall administrative burden against the medical cost or expense, right? The more advanced models understand they need to impact the number of hospital admissions and reduce that rate, reduce the rates or for ER visits, reduce readmission rates, improve certain measures. So in the Medicare Advantage world, you have STARS, 
ultimately, some of these more advanced models will help you improve those measures across all the domains that are part of STARS and even ultimately improve NPS, which is uh, kind of the best proxy to measure the member sentiment or member satisfaction. And I would say one more thing to add would be uh, provider satisfaction, right? Providers are your biggest partners in executing value-based care. So more of these advanced models should be able to address all those pieces. Those are kind of the outcomes from these advanced models, right? And a lot of these, again, are part of some of these demonstrations by CMMI, others also being kind of executed independently of the government, right? So shared savings with upside downside, episode-based payment models, ultimately population-based payment models. There's going to be a very significant movement toward capitating at the population-based, but again, with outcomes in mind. So there are a lot of, there's still some skepticism in terms of, can this really deliver the results? But everything we have seen from these advanced models, it does deliver the results, especially maintain, not only curtailing that cost, but curtailing that cost while you're improving the health outcome of that member or patient. So that's kind of in a nutshell, right? Like what are all those, why advanced models and why move to those more advanced models? It's mostly to, that's where you truly see that ROI, at least to date in terms of overall value-based care execution. And as you mentioned, it's for the patient, the member, the people in healthcare. There's a lot of winners, I guess one could say, in a value-based care system. And so to expand a little more about the patient, how does value-based care impact the patient, the member? Right. Now, if done right, and that's a big if with capital letters, right, it will improve health outcome. And that's ultimately the number one thing for the patient is to have better health outcomes. But because obviously, if you don't have that, you're in, the, in poor health, and ultimately, you'll be accountable for some of that cost to the system that's added on. I think it's also about improving affordability. One of the promises, if you will, of value-based care is to really coordinate that care around a certain goal, right, which is that health outcome. So in that coordination, there's also a lot of cost savings when it comes to administrative functions, not just administrative costs, but also a lot of quote-unquote middlemen being uh, eliminated, right, when you do that coordination appropriately. And again, that coordination in a digital ecosystem can be achieved a little bit more seamlessly than decades past. So I think there are two key elements. One is certainly your health is better, but two is it's better at a more reasonable cost. So I would say those are the two biggest things from a member or patient perspective. And I'm sorry, I keep saying member, but my day job is dealing with health plans, but I always mean patient and person. So those are the two key things I would say are the biggest benefits uh, for the patient. And in your experience, Shatang, do you think that 10 years down the road, 10 years time, do you think that value-based care is going to be the norm? It's just what we're going to be used to. Do you think that we'll have moved past some of these, these learning curve issues? So in my view, yes, absolutely, it will be the norm. Now, will all the challenges that we just talked about, will they go away in 10 years? I'm not sure, sorry about that. Frankly, they've been there since I started my career back in 2000. So I don't see how they'll go away in another 10 years. It's already been 24 years. But it, some of those challenges, especially in terms of the variance across the industry, right? I don't think that variance is going to go away just because of, again, capabilities of individual entities and organization when it comes to data, technology, and just how they go about their business. So that, that variance may not go away. But I think when it comes to curtailing costs, improving outcomes, when it comes to if you just see the basic trends in the industry, right? When you think about getting to personalized care, value-based care is truly the transition to getting to personalized care. 
And once we start to get deeper and deeper into value-based care, especially within the digital ecosystem, I think you will get to that goal of personalized care. So to truly deliver that personalized care and really make that patient content in terms of how care is being delivered to them, how their health is improving or maintaining their health, I think that's where value-based care would be a, almost a stepping stone, right, to get to that pace. So in 10 years, will it be the norm? I believe so. Will it have less challenges? I'm not sure about that. One could hope. Yeah, but, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, as I totally understand, everything's going to, maybe the hurdles might change a little bit, but hopefully, yeah, some of those things get worked out a little bit. But and actually, would you mind giving maybe a short example of what that personalized care could look like down the road when you mentioned that? Yeah. So and I'll go back to that example of kind of heart failure model that I talked about, right, is assuming I had a heart attack and now I'll just use my personal example, right, living in suburbs of Detroit, I have pretty decent access to hospital systems, to pharmacies, to physical therapy, to parks to walk around and do some basic exercise. What my personalized care would look like ideally is the ability to one, give me that access digitally, right? Meaning at my convenience, and then giving me the right information to kind of take those steps on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, monthly basis, right? Making sure I take my medication, making sure I do the minimal exercising or whatever that may be required, making sure my nutrition, my diet is fine, and can constantly getting remind, not constantly, but timely reminders, right? To do the right thing when it comes to all those things, medication, nutrition, exercise. That's what personal care looks like to me. And then also having access to my, not only my cardiologist, but my PCP, as well as the nurse from my health insurance company, and them being able to reach me and me being able to reach them in a seamless manner. Those are all elements of personalized care. Now, what I described was in my environment, right? Now, of course, there's millions of people that have a much different environment after they have that heart attack. So then that personalized care needs to cater to their environment, right? If they don't have a pharmacy within less than 10 miles, if they don't have access to physical therapy, if they, there are no natural settings outside to enjoy a brisk walk, then the care needs to be delivered a little bit differently, right? The information that they need to improve their health needs to be provided a little bit differently. So to me, that's what personalized means, right? It's for a given individual in their environment, giving them everything they need, equipping them with the right information to make the right decisions and manage their health. That's what I would define personalized care as. Thank you. And we've been talking a lot about technology in our time together today. So in terms of technology, what are you most excited about that you believe has the potential to really impact medical services within the next few years, five years or so? Yeah, it's an interesting question, right? We talked about how medicine progresses so fast. Well, technology progresses even faster, okay? So there's always new things coming out, right? The most recent buzz over the last 13, 14 months has been Gen AI and what it can do. But unfortunately, in my view, at least, Gen AI also comes with a lot of inherent risks from accuracy of those outputs to ethical conflicts. There's still a lot to understand about those large language models, right? And more importantly, how to use them for healthcare specifically. But I would say in general, the technology that I personally prefer is just robust analytics, right? And I know it's a form of a type of technology that you were referring to, but 
to me, the analytics piece is huge because this includes not only kind of traditional statistical models, but all the way to more advanced machine learning models and even maybe a little components of AI. But all of that kind of analytics layer, if you will, requires a really strong foundation of the data layer, right? So having reliable data is critical for those things to work. So any technology to, that helps you get the data right, make it accurate, make it real time, and then enables those analytics on top of that data and those capabilities around those analytics, that would be the way to go in my opinion. I think that's the key technology that can truly make a difference. And again, one thing we learned from COVID is the, the digital engagement piece, right? How critical that is, is to really reach the patient where they are in so many different channels that exist now, whether it's through social, whether it's through mobile, whether it's through just uh, IoT, Internet of Things, right? I think they can make a big difference if you kind of leverage them properly and correctly. So is there one specific technology? If I had to talk about one, it would be that analytics component because anything that can help me in decision-making, making decision-making real-time so that I can cater to that patient faster in the more, most appropriate manner with the right care and the right treatment regimen, that would be the things that I'm most excited about. Now, I don't know if that, again, helps answer your question about the specific technology. That's how I think about it. And that was perfect. It's a great way to think about it because, yeah, when you have the information to best make those decisions going forward, then, <laughs> yeah, I think that's the right answer. It's a good one. What, um, it's, well, speaking of the individual, what sort of advice would you have for individuals who are looking to make better healthcare choices and levering technology for their own improved well-being? Yeah, I think the number one thing is staying informed. It's not about the anything but staying informed. So what do I mean by staying informed? Staying informed about your health, regular checkups with the right providers, right? To your PCP, listening to them, following their direction, right? And then staying informed about your condition. If you have a condition or even if you don't have a condition, how do you maintain that? Staying informed about that. Consider ways to be monitored at home, continuously share information with your caregivers. Of course, I don't mean keep going to the hospital or keep going to what I mean by that is if something does happen, don't just kind of take the pain and figure it out your own way, but make sure you get the right advice. And by that, I also don't mean just go on Google and type up, what does this mean? Because there's a lot of misinformation out there. But that's why going back to the first point, which is talk to the right caregiver that knows that kind of not only your history, but your environment, provide that to them so that you can be informed appropriately. I think those are probably the biggest thing. The other thing I have to say this in today's environment is be cognizant of your mental health. And I think this is something that's been taken for granted for a very long time. But I think we're starting to see some of the benefits of not underestimating any kind of behavioral or mental health kind of barriers that you may have. And these can be some simple things like getting proper sleep to getting just a little small workout in, not even workout, just a 10-minute brisk walk-in, right? All these little things can help. And staying informed about how you can incorporate those little things into your day-to-day -day life where it doesn't take up a big chunk of your time, I think is also another big thing you can do as an individual. And then finally, the, the digital engagement piece, right? There's so much information available to us. If you can use the right channels to access that information, I think it can go a long way to 
not only stay healthy, but God forbid you have a certain specific condition to get ahead of that condition and stay ahead of that condition as much as possible. Perfect answers. And then thank you. Yeah. The mental health piece is certainly very, very important. And I would agree. I feel like there's definitely been a lot more attention being paid to that and understanding how that really fits in our total health that would see a doctor we're not feeling well or something's wrong, we would talk to our trusted healthcare professionals and that same would go for mental health. And these, we'd say small things, but they have compounding effect on our life and our health. So a wonderful thing to talk about. Thank you. And Shatong, it was such a pleasure speaking with you today. And I really appreciate your time and all your expertise. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate the opportunity and look forward to our next thing now. Sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. The Shaping Healthcare Podcast is brought to you by Sidious Tech, a leader in healthcare consulting and IT services. To find out more about Sidious Tech, visit SidiousTech.com. To listen to more interesting insights on healthcare technology and innovations, search and subscribe to the Shaping Healthcare Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want to share any feedback or would like to be featured in our podcast, do write to us at SidiousVision at SidiousTech.com.